Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Peace on earth, what does that mean? There are different aspects of peace that we think about at Christmas time. We think about peace with God. The Bible talks about how to have peace with God through justification by faith, being saved. We think about peace with other people, and the Bible teaches that that isn't going to happen completely and fully until he imposes that peace on us in the millennial millennial kingdom, in in the thousand year reign of Christ. But there will be places where peace touches down, where Jesus reigns, peace touches down. There's another aspect of peace that I want to talk about today, and that is that inner peace that's possible for those who are born again, who are children of God. The Holy Spirit lives in them, and they're growing in sanctification. They're growing like the Lord, and so they experience in a growing way the peace of God in their heart. The Bible says that that peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, so we can expect to have it. Now, here's what the Lord's put on my heart uh, for the Christmas season. Four messages, four Sunday morning messages. There's a Christmas Eve service, but the four Sunday morning messages, the Lord has put on my heart to teach, uh, to talk about, to take as a topic the four, four big problems that people have, four problems that many of you have. And the problem that we're going to talk about today is worry. So we're going to talk about worry, we're going to talk about depression, we're going to talk about fear, and we're going to talk about loneliness. And these are the four messages during the Christmas season. And these are all things Jesus came in this, into this world for, to address, to help us with, among many other things. So t- the topic today is worry, and worry is an important topic. When I was a kid, we ha- I had a, a little practice. I always thought somebody was under my bed. I knew it was an irrational fear, but I was sure there was a really bad person that was under my bed. Because he was just quiet all day long, didn't bother anybody. But I was just sure that between the time that I turned my light off and the time I got in bed, he would probably grab me and do some unspeakably horrible thing to me. And I know that was an irrational fear, but I literally, my heart would pound, my, my heart would race, and I would think there's somebody under the bed. So what I would do is I would, and, and I didn't have a light by my bed. I just had the light on the wall and the bed across the room. So what I would do is I would try to turn the light off and get in bed at the same time. So it sounded really cool. You know, I would go to bed and you just hear this crash. And my mom would always come in and say, Kenny, 
what are you doing? And I, I say, I jumped on the bed. She goes, I don't want you to jump on the bed. You're going to break the bed. But she didn't really understand because I was being driven by my worries, my fear. But it was an irrational fear. I, I thought if I was an inventor, I would invent a light switch that you turn off and then like a couple minutes later it goes off. Somebody should do that, right? You turn the light off, go get in bed, and then psh, you have those on your cars if you're rich. You know, if you're one of those, are you, how many of you are wealthy and you have a car like that? Yeah. It's, and, you, and other poor, dumb people like me, we go, hey, you left your lights on. Then you kind of like condescendingly go, they go off on their own. <laughs> Idiot, you know, right? So it happens. Well, if they, if they created that light switch, you could turn it off and then you could get a bit before it went off. Well, that was an irrational worry and it was short. It wasn't serious. But a lot of our worries are not irrational. They're very real. They're things that you worry about, that you think about, that concern you and it affects you. And this is important because worry is bad. As somebody said, somebody, uh, worry often gives a small thing a big shadow. Uh, somebody else said, worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrow, but it is certain to sap today of its joy. These are just like axioms, right? And they're, they're true. Robert Frost said, the reason worry kills more people than work is because more people worry than work. Well, that's all funny, but Jesus had something really profound to say about worry. Jesus said, worry, worry is sin. Now that doesn't seem, that seems almost unfair. Is worry sin? How in the world can worry be sin? It just kind of comes over me. I'll talk about that a little bit. I want to talk to you a little bit about why is worry bad? There's some reasons that worry is bad. Now first of all, because worry is sin. Other places in the Bible command this, but Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and 25 said, don't be worried. Don't be anxious about anything. So if it's a command and you disobey it, what is that? It's sin. It's wrong. So it's sinful to worry. Sinful because we're commanded not to worry. Another reason is because when we worry, what we're doing is we're maligning the character of God. What if you said to me, hey, I, I like you, but I don't trust you. If you said that to me, you're maligning my character, right? I like you, but I don't trust you. You're maligning my character. You're saying you're not trustworthy. And if you say that to me, that's not that big of a deal. But if you say it to God, that's a big deal, right? If you say to God, God, I love you. I know you're powerful. I just don't trust you. Then when you say, I love you, God, but I don't trust you, or I believe in you, but I don't trust you, then what you're saying is, I'm choosing not to put my trust in you because I think your character is suspect. Maybe that's one of the reasons why worry is sin. Another reason my worry might be sin is because when we worry, we're rejecting the providence and the provision of God. It's like God says, I've arranged your life for you. We know that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's in control of everything. He says, I arranged your life for you. These are the circumstances that I've arranged for you. These are the possessions I've arranged for you to have. This is the wife I've arranged for you to marry. This is the job I've arranged to give to you. You don't like it. You're, you're, you're unhappy with that. Then you're unhappy with me and my providence and my provision, and to be unhappy or, un- or dissatisfied with God's providence and his provision is sin. And that's what worry really is. If it isn't sin, somebody said, I remember reading this in high school, I was reading a book by Roy Hashin called The Calvary Road, and I remember saying, him saying in that book, if worry isn't sin, then we can expect to worry in heaven. But we, it wouldn't be heaven if we were worried in heaven, am I right? And so we're maligning the character of God if we choose to worry. Now explain why that is. 
Now, here's another reason that worry is bad. Worry is bad because it leads to more sin. That's the way all sin is. Sin breeds greater, more frequent sin. You sin now, you'll sin again, you'll sin more frequently, you'll sin with greater intensity, you'll sin with greater frequency, you'll go from one sin to another. Sin is that way. If any sin gets its root in your life, it kind of leads to other sins. Worry is like that. And there's a number of examples of that uh, in the Scripture. The Bible says in Psalm 37 and verse 8, don't fret because it only leads to evil. Psalm 37 and verse 8. And by the way, all of Psalm 37 is a great thing to meditate on in the dark night of worry if you're a warrior type. The children of Israel were pursued by Pharaoh's army and they were, they were frightened and they were worried. And that worry caused them or contributed them to turning against their leaders. And, and, and really, if you turn against your God-appointed leaders, then you're turning against God. And so one worry can lead you to turn against God by turning against God-appointed leaders, or any other kinds of things worry can lead you to do. If you're worried about money, you might steal, or you might cheat. If you're worried about things, at least to other sin. There's another thing that makes worry bad. Not only is uh, worry a sin, worry leads to more sin, but, but worry also, I can't make it advance, so maybe you could help me with that, because I think I fouled up the... Worry chokes out the Word of God. Worry chokes out the Bible. This is what the scriptures say in, in Luke eight fourteen. You know this is in the parable of the sower, one of the examples of the parable of the sower. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those also when they heard, they go out and they're choked with cares and riches and the pleasures of life and they bring no fruit to maturity. So in other words, the cares of this world, the worries of this world can choke out the fruit that would normally come through your interaction with the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. So somebody teaches you the Word or you read the Word, but if you're worried, you can be sitting here right now worried about something and not even hearing what's being said or not being able to receive what, what it says. In Luke 21, there's a warning there in verse 34. Take heed to yourselves. This is about the coming of the Lord. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. And it lists three things together. Carousing, drunkenness, and worry. The cares of this life. Isn't it interesting? How do you think carousing is a good thing? Raise your hand if you think carousing is a good thing. If you do, you're not voting in church, right? How do you think drunkenness is a good thing? Yeah, if you've seen it up close and personal, you know drunkenness is not a good thing. How do you think worry, worry is okay? How many of you are more likely to understand warriors than you are carousers? Yeah, right. Me too. Isn't that the way it is? But, but they're all put together. It says, look out for these kinds of things because if you get involved in worry or drunkenness or carousing, guess what? You're not going to be ready for Jesus to come back. And so worry can choke out the word. Worry also is bad because it's a bad reflection on your God. If he can't make you happy, he must not be a very good God. In other words, isn't this just like the opposite of glorifying God? Glorifying God is saying, look how wonderful my God is. Look how happy my God has made me. Look how good my God is. He's forgiven, of my, he's forgiven my sins. He's made my life good. Worry, though, you know, furrowed brow of worry says, I'm not sure that you ought to trust my God because I'm not sure I trust my God. So worry is a poor reflection on your God. That's another reason why it's bad. There's a proverb in Proverbs 15, 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil. You know, watch people that, it's the way of the transgressors hard. Watch people who just violate God's ways and walk away from the Lord, and their ways are hard. 
The opposite of that, though, is the rest of this in Proverbs 15, 15. He who is of a merry heart is a continual feast. He who has a merry heart is a continual feast. So a person who walks away from the things of God, their life tends to kind of crash in on them. But when you walk in the ways of God and you know God and you love God, it's like, a, it's like a, there's a joyfulness. There's a joyful merriment. There's the right kind of happiness and contentment. And you see a person like that, they're like a continual feast. It's like you're always at a big, happy feast or banquet. And I don't want to worry you either, but worry can make you sick. Worry, and there's a lot of documentation for this, psychosomatic illness. Worry can actually make you sick, and there's specific ways. Physicians and medical people could tell you that worry will contribute to you not being healthy. It can lead to physical problems. It can lead to deadly physical problems. So you see, worry is a big problem. And knowing that I have to speak on this has had me worrying about it all week long. Worry is sin. Worry leads to more sin. Worry can choke out the word make it impossible for you to have fruit in your life, make you not ready for the Lord to come back. Worry is a bad reflection on your God. Worry can make you sick. So the question is, okay, how do I stop doing it then? Because how many of you feel like worry seems like more involuntary than drunkenness and carousing? It's like you've got to dress up and go out and carouse, right? You've got to buy booze and drink a bunch of it to get drunk. But worrying just comes so easy. Just lay down in your bed, bang, you're worrying. Am I right? It's just so, you can worry in church, but if you carouse here, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna, we got ushers that are gonna take care of you. If you get drunk in church, we're probably gonna like take a dim view of that. You know, it's just like, don't do that. You're there. But you can sit right here and you can worry. And so what I, what I've noticed is this. In my life, the most helpful thing to get a bad thing out is to put a good thing in its place. That's biblical. Put off and put on. Right, And so I want to suggest to you seven different practical things from the Bible about how to push worry out of your life. All right, here we go. Number one, uh, confession and obedience. How to replace worry or push it out. Confession and obedience. In other words, do what you can do. This is really important. Think about worry. All right, here you have, for instance, um, let's just say that you have the little sticker in the corner of the windshield of your car that says you should have changed your oil 5,000 miles ago. Why is that funny to you? Yeah, it's like, you're like, you know what I do? If I do that, I go in to get my oil changed, but before I pull in, I take the sticker off. And I'm saying, I don't know, need some kid going, you should have changed your oil. I'm like, duh, that's why I'm here. So I'm like, just put oil in the thing and don't ask me any questions, right? I don't do that, but I've met people who do. But, but so if you haven't changed your oil for 5,000 miles more, 10,000 miles more than the manufacturer suggests, I would just suggest... You should be concerned about that. And what should you do? Worry about it? Stay awake at night and think, oh, I haven't changed my oil. I haven't changed my oil. I haven't changed my oil. I wonder what kind of, where am I going to get money for a new car? No. What should you do? Change your oil. Just go, a lot of stuff that we worry about is stuff that we should have obeyed about and we won't have to worry about it. It's just obedience. In other words, there's kind of a difference between conviction and concern and worry, right? If, if you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, thank God, the Holy Spirit is doing His work in your life. He's saying to you, hey, knucklehead, do what you're supposed to do. And when you do, <laughs> when you do what you're supposed to do, that's the first time I ever got an amen out of a knucklehead. That's the first time that ever happened. Yeah. So just do what you're supposed to do. And then you don't have to worry anymore. It's like, okay, obey. And if you haven't done what you're supposed to do, what should you do? Confess it. Just say the Lord. And so this is like, you worry, like, think, wait a minute. 
there are a number of things I should have done. The Holy Spirit is kind and merciful and gracious, and He's burdening my heart with burden, which is conviction, which is the gift of God, convicting my heart. So I confess that sin. That's why it says in Psalm 139, you're familiar with this, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any offensive way in me. Anxious thoughts come often from offensive ways. So if you're sinning and it's contributed to you worrying, then do what's right. You don't have to worry anymore. But a lot of times people worry as a replacement for obedience and confession. So just confess and obey. These are things that God has given to us. Jesus, in the premium teaching of the Bible on worry, toward the end in verse 33 of Matthew 6 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't worry, but seek righteousness, right? So when Jesus says don't worry, he doesn't mean be irresponsible and carefree and don't take care of your responsibilities, never change your oil, don't take care of your wife or your kids or do what's right. No, do what's right. And when you've done what's right, then don't worry. Proverbs 28 and verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And another proverb, Proverbs 1 Proverbs 1.33 says, Whoever listens to me will dwell safely, and he will be secure without fear of evil. Now be careful here on this one, because what can happen is, if you're a warrior type, you can hear a little voice that says, You should have done this, you should have done that, you should have done this, you should have done that. And that little voice will tell you to do things God didn't tell you to do. So you have to watch out for both ways. Some of you are, you, you tend to be more callous in your heart, and it's hard for the Lord to get through to you. He kind of has to whack you over the head with a two before to get your attention. And you guys should be just really sensitive and tender to the Lord. God, speak. Your servant's listening and quick to obey. Others of you are like, there's a, there's a, there's a sensitivity. It's like every message is exactly to you personally, right? And you'll come to me sometimes. I'm like, well, I wasn't actually picking on you. I didn't really know your, it, it, just, it, was, it was the Lord, you know, just talk to him about it. I, I didn't, I wasn't, I don't have your house bugged. You know, the Lord does, but, but I don't. And, and, and so uh, he's the silent listener to every conversation, unseen guest at every meal, right? He's there, so you might want to keep that in mind. But I'm not there. And so you're, you're, you have an oh, like a conscience that's extremely... And, and the accuser might come and bring up past sin, or he might kind of like throw you off. There's something you should take care of, but he'll bring up something over here, get you on some little nitpicky thing. Be very careful. In other words, don't listen to the voice of the accuser. And the way that you can tell the difference is Satan isn't going to challenge you to obey the Bible. The Holy Spirit's going to challenge you to obey the Bible. So obey the voice of the Spirit and reject the voice of the accuser. Worry is when we are taking mental or emotional responsibility for something that's beyond our immediate control, that's not our responsibility, something that belongs to somebody else or to God. I heard a man who was a successful businessman said he developed a thing he called the 10-second rule. He said the 10-second rule was this, and I'll read it to you. Do the thing that you are reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do right now. And where does the 10 seconds come in? He says act within 10 seconds so you're not discouraged by another voice. So if he says, do the thing right now that you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do and obey that voice immediately. That's probably good advice. So that's one way. One way to replace worry is to confess and obey. 
Can you see how that's helpful? Second way is meditation. Just because we use this uh, word frequently, don't don't, um, discount it. Meditate on the character and on the sovereignty and on the providence of God. Think about who God is. He's got everything in control. He is the ultimate one who's responsible for everything. He can be trusted. Meditate on that. Think about that. Think about the past, how he's been good to you in the past. If you're worried about if God has forgiven past sin, meditate on his mercy. If you're worried about money and bills, meditate on his generosity and his goodness and remember his past provision. If you're worried about enemies that are trying to hurt you, meditate on his loyalty, his power, and his past protection. If you're worried about things that are out of your control, like a wayward child or the fact that you're still single and you don't want to be still single, meditate on his power and control, his ability to control all of that. Sometimes you might think, I'm alone, and God seems distant and detached to me. Then meditate on a psalm like this, Psalm 94, 19. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. Or Romans 8 and verse 39. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You feel alone. Meditate on Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Don't fear or be afraid. The Lord your God, He's the one who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Now, here's the thing about the Bible meditation is, you might read a Bible verse and go, that's a good Bible verse, like it. Put that in my little Bible verse thing, you know. Or that's a good one, I memorized that. So Juana, you know, it's like, you ever hear the Juana kids, they say a verse, and you wonder when they walk away. <laughs> Dude, they can remember that verse? I'm going to tell you, they, they're probably going to remember it. They're probably going to remember it. But it's going to come back with force someday. Come back with force. Come back with, you know what I'm talking about? You read a Bible verse, you go, okay, that's God's truth, like that, looks good, good poetry. But then you're like, you're like clawing your way through the dark night of the soul and all of a sudden that passage just like lights up and it gives you comfort, encouragement. You know what I'm talking about, right? All of us have had this experience because the Word of God is like that. So meditate on the Bible on who, because the meditation on the truth of God is meditation on who God is. And you see, when you're worrying, what you're doing is you're taking responsibility for things that God says He's going to take care of. Right? If you're obeying, you're taking responsibility for what he says you should take care of. When you're worrying, you're taking responsibility for what he says he'll take care of. Meditate on who he is, how wonderful he is, and those things, then the worry will go away. I've made mistakes, so God is against me, the liar might tell you. Then you meditate on something like this, Exodus 34, and verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God who's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. So exchange between God and Moses in the Old Testament, talking about how eager God is. He takes delight in people and wants to be able to forgive them. Or maybe I always have turmoil in my soul. And so I, take, I meditate on Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You say, well, I don't have rest. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19 says, we see that they could not enter into rest because of their unbelief. And maybe, maybe what we need to do is, is foster a deeper obedience, a deeper belief and confidence in the Lord, and then we enter into, we have the experience of rest, and we have the, have the feeling of rest. Maybe you feel like your situation is impossible, then you would meditate on a passage like Jeremiah 32, verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? I've got to tell you, I was in my study when I read that verse, and I have no idea why. 
I am, that, that verse, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And I have no idea why, but when I was in my study and I read that, it just, I, I just burst into tears. I don't know why God used that phrase, is there anything too hard for me? You know, I like to say, we want to ask God to do what only he can do. We want to depend on God to do what only he can do. And that will help you a lot if you're worrying. And that is to think, there's nothing I can do. I've done what I can do. There's nothing that I can do more about this. I'm going to throw my dependence on God. Is there anything too hard for him? So you're, if your God is big, your problems will get smaller. These are just examples. Another practical way of saying this is I call zoom out. Zoom out or get perspective. Or maybe another way of doing this would be like, imagine you climb a high mountain or a high tower. You take a plane flight over your life and you see the whole lay of the land and you realize and you get perspective, zoom out. Ultimately, the way to zoom out is to see things from God's point of view, from an eternal perspective. And when you can see your troubles now from an eternal perspective, I was laying in my bed last night thinking about this. I was thinking about how good, how kind, how gracious God has been to me all of my life. How he's always provided for me in the past. He's always helped me in the past. He's done things that I never expected him to do. Given me things I never expected to have. Let me do things I never expected to be able to do. Protected me in ways I don't deserve. I thought if I wrote a book about this, it would make great reading. It would be so interesting in every twist and turn. Now, God, do you think he's going to get to, I'm 54. You think at 54, God's going to say, I'm done with you, Ken. No more. I'm not going to take care of you like I always took care of you. You're big boy now. You think he's going to behave that way? You think if I have aging and aches and pains coming on and concerns about a growing family and grandkids that I can't control, I can just pray for? Don't you think that the same God who took care of me when I was young and I didn't deserve it is going to take care of me now that I'm old and I don't deserve it? The more I think about how good and faithful and dependable God is, then the better I'm going to do about this thing about worry. Am I right? Zoom out. Take a kingdom perspective. And ask the, what I call the sovereignty question. Remember Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. And then it says in verse 29, to be conform, so that we would be conformed to the image of his son. So we know that things work together for good to those who love him, to conform him to the image of his, of his son. So here's the sovereignty question. Ask this of yourself when you're going through something horrible, hard, difficult, painful, and you're tempted to worry. Say, how is this going to make me more like Jesus Christ? Ask that. It's an awesome question. How can this make me more like Jesus Christ? Because the thing that we're tempted to do when we're going through trouble is to act not like Jesus. And so that's a great question. God, you're pressing me now. How is this going to make me more like Jesus Christ? Because we know that's what he wants. And I will just say, if it helps you, worry is evidence of worldliness. Worldliness. You know, we think of worldliness in funny ways, but Worldliness is just preoccupation with the material, temporary things without the eternal perspective. Thinking with, about the things around you and losing eternal or godly or heavenly perspective. It's a deadly distraction. We never want to do that. It, we, when we're worrying, it's evidence that we're distracted from eternal, heavenly things. When we're worrying, it's evidence that we're worldly. We're kind of here and now thinking instead of perspective of God. Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And by the way, let me suggest, this is meditation, let me suggest this. Meditation especially, is do it anywhere. Do it in the shower, do it in the car, do it in your bed, do it in your living room, everywhere. But especially in God's creation. 
It, when Jesus talked about this, he would often bring up things about creation, right? When, in that key passage in Matthew, that beautiful passage in, in Matthew chapter 6, he says three things. He, say, he says, I want you to pay attention. When you worry, I want you to pay attention to what I'm going to say. Birds. Flowers. And unbelievers. Pagans, he says. All right, so you're worried. This is what Jesus said. I love the simplicity and the concrete nature of his advice. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Consider the birds of the air. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Consider the lily. And remember that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these flowers. And consider unbelievers, pagans, lost people. That's the way they behave. As if you're acting as if you don't have a God. Go out in nature and listen to the rumble of the thunder. Go out in nature and look at the magnitude of the mountains. We're great lakes people. Go out and look across the lake. Look into the sky. Listen to the bird song. Look at the intricacy of nature, even in your own backyard. This will be good, a good environment for us to meditate is in nature. So Elijah, he is, right, he's like on Mount Carmel, and he calls down all the prophets of Baal, and then what is what happens then? Jezebel says, I'm I'm going to kill you, right? This is like the Cliff Notes version of the story. Jezebel's like, I'm going to kill you. Jezebel is bad news. I don't know if you knew that or not. She's like bad news. You ever notice nobody names her daughter Jezebel? They're, they're dogs. They're, I think there's some cats named Jezebel, but they're no dogs or children. So he says, he's, Jezebel's going to kill you. So what does he do? He says, Jezebel, I'm not afraid of Jezebel. If I can, you know, if I can like, stand up to the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, call down fire out of heaven, I'm not worried about somebody with too much makeup on, right? I'm like, bring it on. But that's what he does. He goes running off and he hides under a tree and then in a cave. And then God comes to him and the, the angel of the Lord. And this is a, you, you really, we could spend a lot of time on this, but we will not. But you should read it. It's just a powerful, it's in 1 Kings 19. And remember what God does. He, he uses the angel of the Lord. He says, come out here. Come out of the cave. He drags, what are you doing here? Drags him out of the cave. And he puts him out on the mountain now, facing the mountain. And then what happens? A wind powerful enough to break rocks. That's serious wind, right? A wind powerful enough. And the Bible says, and he was not in the wind. You know this, right? This is a great passage. And then an earthquake. This would get your attention. You're on a mountain, and the wind powerful enough to break rocks. And then the earth trembles, and God is not in the earthquake. And then just to top it off, a little fire. You know? Fire. How did that look? I don't know. And the Bible says the Lord was not in the fire. He did all that just to get his attention. And then what was he? He was in the quiet whisper, still small voice. I, I just believe it's a practical bit of advice based on this, based on Jesus. When you're worried, if you can, of course, you can meditate on the Word of God. And if you can, meditate on the Word of God in a beautiful place, in a place where something big, if it's small, maybe you have a bird bath in your backyard. Maybe you have a tree that you can look on. And I'm not talking about any kind of weird worship of nature. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying you see evidence of the power of God, of the creative ability. There's something God made us that way. And, and so I was, uh, when, when Daniel was born, our son Daniel, uh, he's 21 now, and he's a big strapping, he eats like a horse, he runs like a deer, uh, he leaps tall building in a single bound. Um, well, not really, but, you know, he's a perfectly healthy kid. And he's away at college right now. And, and uh, the other day, I went to speak at his college, and they asked him to introduce me. 
It was very cool. So he got up and introduced me to speak. But when he was little, and he, when he was first born, I was preaching, and they came and they interrupted my message, and they said, you need to go to the hospital because your son's been taken to the hospital. And I never had held him yet. I let everybody else hold him when he was born because everybody was wanting to hold him. And then I thought, what happens if I never get to hold him? And it really bothered me. They put him in this incubator. They kind of tied him down, and I kept looking through the window of this little incubator and thinking, you know, um, I hope he gets better. And it just went on and on. It took so long. And one, one day, it was, in, it was late November, and it was in November, mid-November, and I was, it was in, in Ohio, and I, was, and I don't worry much, but that worried me. And it, it was like an oppressive worry just to ch- on my chest. You know, I couldn't get it off my heart. What if I don't get to hold him? What if something happens to him? It was probably not entirely rational, but I just thought, I never got to hold him. What do, and, it just, and I couldn't make it go away. I couldn't make the feeling go away. I didn't like it. I remember walking outside of the hospital there in Newark and walking through the parking lot and taking a deep breath and looking up in the sky, and there was a double rainbow arching across the sky. And I remembered how God uses the rainbow as a promise. Now, the promises I root my life in are the word of God, and God could have took our boy, but he didn't choose to do that. But the idea is this, is that somehow God uses his creation to encourage us and meditate. I've got so much more to say, and I really don't have a lot of time, so you're going to get the flyover. I'm sorry about this, but you're going to get the flyover of the rest of these, and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll touch on these again if, if you think they'd be helpful to you. The third thing is worship. Focus on Jesus. Martha, Mary. Remember, Martha was all distracted because Mary wasn't helping her. And he says, and this is the part where Jesus says, you are worried and you're troubled and you're anxious about a lot of things, but she's chosen the good part. This one thing is the thing you should have. So worship, you can't worry and worship at the same time. You can't worry and worship at the same time. So when you feel the worry coming on, change it to worship who he is. And as John 21, uh, 22 passage is about Peter and John. And remember that Peter, Jesus makes breakfast for Peter, and then he says, I'm going to put you back into service. And he puts Peter back into service. He says, oh, by the way, you remember when you took off because you didn't want to die? You're going to die, just so you know. You know. And then he goes, what about John? Peter says, what about John? Jesus at this point has been very tender with Peter. He tells him this really engaging story. He kind of draws him back. He kind of gently gets him to undeny him three times. Remember that? And then he says, you're going to go and you're still going to be strong enough to die. And you're going to serve me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my flock, right? And so it's all beautiful. It's all very tender up at this point. And then Peter says, what about John? And Jesus' answer is is kind of like this. "What, What business is that of yours? You follow me. What is that to you? You follow me. And that's what he would say to worry. If your worry comes from, hey, comparison, how come I did this and this is the outcome I got? And they did the same thing and they got a lot better outcome. How come I don't have more money? People over there aren't better than I am and they have more money. Like they have, why doesn't my husband behave this way? Look at her husband. He's such a nice guy. There's all these nice things and my husband won't do this. Why is that? What is that to you? You follow me. That's what Jesus says. Consider that one thing. Worship Jesus. Worship drives out Worry. And number four is prayer. Obviously, prayer is the way we express dependence on God. It's, worry is the dependence on God. Trust in God is the opposite of worry. And prayer is the supreme way to express our dependence on God. And that's why these worry passages there in First Peter, cast all your anxiety, your care on him because he cares for you, First Peter 5, 7. Or the one that's so familiar in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but it, everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds 
in Christ Jesus. And so remember, uh, Philip's paraphrase that I put up there, say you can, he said it this way, as paraphrased the Bible this way, you can throw your whole weight, the whole weight of your anxieties on him because you are his personal concern. So you think about whatever it is you're worried about, no matter age you are or whatever is bothering you, no matter how big it seems or no matter how small it seems. It might be you're just a teenager and you think, well, God of the universe doesn't really care about me. I'm a teen. Yes, he does. Here's how I know. He cares about if one sparrow falls to the ground, he knows and he cares. And he said, aren't you of much more value than many sparrows? So if he cares about birds falling to the ground, and he notices, he takes note of birds that fall to the ground, then he cares about teenage boys that have problems and difficulties and burdens, and they hurt, and they don't, they, it's hard for them to talk about. He cares about that little teenage girl who never tells anybody, but when she looks in the mirror, she just doesn't like the way her nose looks. But she never told her mom, never told her dad. And that worry that she, when she looks in a mirror, she doesn't like the way her nose looks, and she worries and worries about that. Her Heavenly Father knows that. He cares about that. He wants to keep that from becoming something that's going to cause her to make really serious mistakes in her life. He cares. He cares about you. And so what do you do? You just turn it over to him in prayer. Prayer is just so the opposite of worry. Prayer is the one most wonderful way to push worry out. Every time you're tempted to worry, just take that as, okay, time to pray. And you'll be praying and praying and praying, won't you? Turn, turn your worries into prayer. I mean, that's pretty simple. Number five is what I call community. Get around encouraging people who have a good word for you. Anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. i got people in my life that I will not get around unless I have to if I need an encouraging word because they're not good at it. I'll love them, I'll help them, but I will avoid them when I need an encouraging word, right? But there are other people that are on my encouragement cabinet. I know they're going to say an encouraging word to me. I know they're gifted by God to say just the right thing at the right time. And I remember who those people are, and I get to them because I need we need that. That's Christian community. And so make sure that you're that kind of person. There's another one, and this is so beautiful, singing. Singing drives worry out. Sing and listen to music that's rich with scriptural truth. Ephesians uh, 5, 19 and 20, and the parallel passage, Colossians 3. Listen to what Colossians 3, 16 uh, says. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Sometimes I notice, not picking on you, I notice that people listen to singing, but they don't participate in singing. And the Bible says participate in singing. And here's why. Because he made us, and he knows what's good for us, and he made us to make a joyful noise. And this is one thing. You can't worry and sing at the same time. You ever tried it? Just get, you know, put on a, a, put on a wonderful, whatever kind of music. Maybe you're a Gaither-like music person, or maybe you're a Chris Tomlin-like music person, or maybe you're an organ and choir-type music person. Whatever God uses to touch you deeply in your soul, like put that on your computer or on your YouTube or whatever, put it in your, and then sing your little heart out, especially with other people. And come here, and you notice a significant part of our service, and we do this on purpose, a significant part of every one of our services is just God's people singing together. And why? It's evidence of a, of that it's, it's evidence of a heart of joy, but it's a means of being filled with the Holy Spirit. A means of being filled 
I used to think it was evidence of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It, I think it's, that's true. But it's especially a means of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Take rich scriptural songs and sing them. Sing the worry right out of your heart. I've done this many, many times myself. When my heart was just broken and I felt like I couldn't even go on. And then I just got songs that I knew would encourage me. And then I just sang those songs and it's like God lifted my spirit. And I just want to encourage you to do that. And then this goes along with it so beautifully, the final one, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Maybe I'm a week late here, but keep a running list in your heart of things God's done for you. Keep a running list in your heart of things that God has done for you. You know what's interesting is I uh, saw a book, I saw actually a website a while ago by a woman whose name was Ann, I think her pronounced name is Voskamp. She's a beautiful website. Some of you ladies I know in particular have seen this website. And here's how the thing came about. This girl didn't know the Lord. She was lost. She came from a family that were farmers in Canada, and she didn't know the Lord. And she says her earliest memory, the earliest memory that she ever had, is a memory of her little sister being crushed to death by a delivery truck on her farm. And so as a result of that, that created all kinds of difficulties for her emotionally, deep emotional difficulties. Uh, that even went on after she came to know the Lord. She had a neighbor that did a Bible club, and the neighbor did the children's Bible club, and she got saved in the neighbor's children's Bible club, and then she married, later on, married the son of the lady who did the Bible club. But she had these ongoing troubles, agoraphobia, couldn't leave the house, actually, and when she's young, cutting herself, just terrible, oppressive problems. And here's what she discovered. She, her friend gave her a, a journal, and in this journal, her friend said to her, take this journal and write down uh, some of your favorite things, things that are your favorite things. You remember the old song, a few of my favorite things. So she took the journal, she starts to write down number. I think her, maybe her friend said, write down a thousand of your favorite things. So she began to write down her favorite things. And after a while, she began to realize, you know what this is? This is a journal of thanksgiving. This is just a list of things to be thankful for. So she changed it to a list of a thousand. And now there's a movement I think you should be a part of it. I am a movement of people who have made a, made a journal. Some of them do it online. Some of them do it in a little paper journal. A thousand things to be thankful for. Now, if you have a thousand things to be thankful for, how can you be crushed by worry or tempted by worry or involved in sin because of worry if your life is filled with thanksgiving? Heavenly Father, I pray for the folks here today and for me, for them, that we would displace worry in our lives and instead be people of sound and faith. We thank you today, most of all, above anything else, for the death on our behalf of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, without which we would have reason to be very worried and without hope in this world. But because we have, those of us who believe, we have eternal life. We have a right standing before God. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we commemorate his life and death now at the Lord's table. Amen. We know that uh, part of our fellowship uh, communion, our fellowship around the Lord's table, a part of it is a celebration, but it begins with uh, introspection, godly introspection, self-examination. And it shouldn't be... Uh, it shouldn't be all of it, but it should be a significant part of it, that we examine our hearts 
and see if our... Uh, so question number one, do you know the Lord is your Savior? Are you, are you born again? Do you know that you're born again? Because it would be not right for you to take communion if you weren't a believer. Set it aside until you become a believer. And the second thing is, are you, as far as you know, you're right with the Lord. The best of your ability. There's something that you know that's not right, that you're unwilling to make right, and uh, in, in which case you should make it right and take communion. But if you are unable or unwilling to do that, then you don't want to take communion because the Bible gives a warning about that. And of course, we, we like to remind you too that young people should have their parent, young little children should have their parents' permission, haven't been tr- trained, taught, catechized by their parents. After that, we, we, we examine ourselves and during this season of the year is a good time for us to examine our hearts especially. We're going to have a great celebration throughout this month as a church and as a culture. We're going to celebrate the Lord's birth. You're a believer. You know how to celebrate Jesus Christ coming to this world and we're going to sing and feast and celebrate. And we should do that wholeheartedly, but first we should prepare ourselves with serious, sober self-examination. This is what we do. Uh, that's connected with the Lord's table. I hope that's what you've done as the element of, of the bread was distributed to you today. In Matthew in chapter 26, the uh, Lord's Supper is the, is the uh, story of the Lord's Supper. In verse 26 says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed and broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take eat, this is my body. gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When you observe the way pagans celebrate Christmas you'll recognize there's just a huge difference, isn't there, between people who really, really know the Lord and love him and those who don't know him yet. And um, my prayer for you and our prayer here for you is that throughout this month, this would be a very special month for you, a very sacred month, that over and over again within the church ministries and outside that, you, that your, your spiritual life would be stimulated. And I want to give you a couple of little bonuses on the way out today. This has got to go clear to the end of my, so permit me to go through my thing. I want to show you these three more things. Bonus tips about how to deal with worry. Tend to the temple, take care of yourself. Nutrition, exercise, so forth. The Bible says our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes worry comes out of that. Second, enjoy life. The Bible says he's given us all things richly to enjoy. And so it's our responsibility to enjoy the things that he's given us. What I'm saying is plan, schedule things to look forward to. So if you overcome with worry, schedule some things to look forward to. This is a little secret that I have. If you ask me right now, what are you looking forward to? I give you a big, long list of things that I'm looking forward to. That's one of the things that keeps me going, gets me up in the morning, have something happy to look forward to. This is right, biblical, holy. It's a way to worship God. And then keep it simple. And this brings us all full circle around to what Jesus said. In Matthew 6.33, the way to overcome worry is to keep it simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When I was a little boy, my dad was a pastor of a little tiny church in a little town called DeGraff. I was sitting on the couch one day, and our, our life was extremely simple. We had one car, 
had a modest income. We always had plenty to eat, but it was a very simple, modest, frugal home. We didn't have lots of extras, and we had some nice things. And my parents always made sure Christmas was a wonderful time for us, but extra things we didn't have. I was sitting on the couch one day, and uh, a delivery came. It was a little boy, and so I went to the door to receive the delivery, and there was a man in a top coat and a black top coat, well-dressed man in a suit, a black top coat, very professional-looking, and he had this huge case in his hands, a case of navel oranges, oranges bigger, biggest softballs. I'd never seen oranges this big before. And he was from a local funeral home, and it was their practice to give a case of oranges to the pastors in town. I suppose it was good for business. And so they said, well, we just brought a Christmas gift by for you and your family. And they handed me this case of oranges. I took it inside. And I said, what is this? My mom took it off. She said, look at those. Those are delightful. Those are, those are luxurious. Those are premium. Those are Florida naval oranges. She said, we're going to put those out on the back porch where it's cold. And so my mom and dad, they said, we're just going to leave them alone until dad gets home. Dad gets home and he says, all right, what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have one a day. So they last till Christmas. And so every day I was like, can I have my orange now? And they would say, okay, you can go get your orange. I would go out on the back porch, open up this case, get this big navel orange out. I never had one before. Peel that navel orange with my pocket knife. My dad taught me how to peel this navel orange with my pocket knife. And this fragrance would be released in the air that I still to this day always associate with the happiest things about Christmas. And then I would bite into that. It was like sweeter than candy. Extremely good stuff. And I look back and I think about all of the, you know, the things I remember that are meaningful at Christmas time are things like sitting on the couch and eating a nail orange. Or, you know, we, I, you, you know or I have a lot of disappointment with all the gadgetry that my parents tried to buy me that didn't work until New Year's, right? But I remember those little pageants with everybody in their bathrobe, a little towel on their head, and a little cardboard crowns. Those things stick with us. And so I want to suggest to you that maybe one of the ways to keep the worry out of your home this Christmas time is to keep it simple and keep the focus on the Lord Jesus. Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing on those that have gathered here in your name at Evangel today. And I pray that you'd make us good news people, evangelists, good reflections on you, joyful worshipers. People really know how to do Christmas. And I pray... Lord, tonight, when we assemble back in this room and our teens minister to us in the, uh, uh, the teen Christmas musical and drama, Christmas Unplugged, Lord, tonight, uh, I pray that many would come and would hear of your story in a, in a fresh way, that our young people would be filled with the Spirit uh, tonight, and that much good would come from this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I need to remind you of two things before you go. Uh, Christmas Unplugged tonight, 6 o'clock. Next Saturday and Sunday, Searching for the King is our adult Christmas choir. And we also have a, a ballot posted because in a couple of weeks we have an election coming up on Wednesday night. We'll see you tonight.